Welcome to the Mojo Maker for Women in Tech podcast, where you will learn career strategies and techniques to help you break down barriers, make more money, and thrive in your tech life at work and at home. Technology has never been more mission critical to our online stay-at-home world, and you are the key to its success. You'll hear from diverse women in tech as well as experts who share both personal and professional strategies so you can transform your work and your workplace from the inside out. I'm Karen Morstel, former Silicon Valley tech leader and serial CISO for iconic brands like AT&T Wireless, Microsoft, and Russell Investments. I hope you will join me in my mission and message of resilience and transformation to make an inclusive and equitable tech industry. If you find this show helpful, please leave us a like and share it. And don't forget to hurry over to createyourleadingedge.com to join innovative and affordable group coaching for women in tech on your terms. And now on to Mojo Maker for Women in Tech. Today, you'll hear from an advertising executive who got her start as a receptionist and left the industry as the CEO of the oldest and largest advertising firm in New York City. Lynn Power took to entrepreneurship, launching her luxury hair care line, and she now serves women founders who find the community where they can confidently and confidentially open up about their unique challenges. Join us to hear about the importance of confidence, when to be assertive and how it's okay to a point to be quiet, and the number one desire of women in the midst of this pandemic. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Mojo Maker for Women in Tech podcast. And today I have with me Lynn Power. And I am so excited to talk to you today, Lynn, because, you know, she comes from the advertising world. Lynn is a longtime advertising executive. She was the formerly former CEO of J. Walter Thompson in New York, one of the oldest and largest advertising firms in the industry before it merged. Now she's an entrepreneur and she has worked with many iconic brands over the years. She These include L'Oreal, Nestle, Clinique, American Express, and Campari. Nothing anybody's ever heard of. <laughs> so, you know, this means we share so much in common, right? Coming from, I would say, very male-dominated industries. So this is going to be an exciting conversation. Lynn left advertising in 2018 to launch a premium hair care brand called Masami. Did I say that right? Sure. Yes. Thank you. Masami. Okay. And that launched in February, 2020. So anyway, Lynn, welcome to the show. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much. It's really great to um, be on the show. And I think we're going to have a lot to talk about. I know. I know we are. This I've been looking forward to this for weeks. Um, so let's, let's kind of start at the beginning. You were in advertising. You made it to the CEO of a very large advertising firm established, you know, in such a male dominated industry. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your path and how you ended up moving into entrepreneurship, opening a hair care brand and doing so much to help women? I'd oh love to gosh. hear that. Well, okay. How much time do we actually have? <laughs> all so, we need, all uh, we need, we, we'll take all the time we need. Okay. 
I will try to be succinct if I can, because it's, it's my story is not like I knew I wanted to get in advertising. I mapped it out. I had a plan. It didn't really happen like that at all. I actually wanted to go into the FBI and uh, my major had nothing to do with marketing or advertising. I was a double major of English and criminal justice. And when I graduated, this was a long time ago, 1989. God, I feel old saying that. It just sounds so old. But anyway, um, there was a hiring freeze. And so I ended up getting an interview at an ad agency that this lovely recruiter, I still remember her name. It was Beverly Von Winkler. You can't really forget that name. Right. Beverly Von Winkler, she decided because I typed really fast that she liked me. And I do still type incredibly fast. And it's been a really good skill. And I encourage my children to learn to type because it's one of those things that, you know, just good to know. Anyway, um, so she got me uh, an interview at an ad agency as a receptionist. They hired me on the spot. I think I fit their description of a breathing human who could answer the phone and I ended up loving it and worked my way up the, the chain, if you will. Um, I worked at a bunch of agencies, most of them ones you would have heard of, like BBDO and McCann and Gray and Ogilvy. But I did find that I was hitting the, the ceiling quite a bit. Um, and I was one of those people who, you know, instead of just sort of sucking it up and working in a place that didn't appreciate my work or was going to promote men over me, which happened a lot, I would just be like, you know what, I'm going to go get another job. <laughs> this is not where I, yeah, it's not, it wasn't working for me. So I did that a few times and it actually worked because I would get in a better position and I'd find a better culture. And I kind of just had to like, like, and it was very intuitive. It wasn't, like I said, I didn't have a plan. I just knew that if I was somewhere and I felt I was being held back, which happened at, at almost every job I had at some point that, you know, I wasn't, I didn't want to stick around forever. So anyway, so I ended up going to a smaller age after McCann, which I really didn't like. I was working on L'Oreal. Um, I went to a smaller agency, but for a bigger role. And I ended up running the office, Arnold, which was fantastic. And I did that for eight years and I really loved it. But then I ended up leaving and I went to J. Walter Thompson and I ended up you know, being the CEO of New York, which is the headquarters office. But then I did get to a point in my career where I kind of felt like I had accomplished what I wanted to accomplish in advertising, you know, because you have these images in your head of the, the bosses, if you will, and having these really glamorous roles and jobs. And it's just not the case. Like what I found, which I think is probably more true in most industries than not, is the more senior you get, the more tedious your job gets in a lot of ways because you're dealing with problems all day. You're not dealing with the fun stuff anymore. And when I got into advertising, what I really loved about it was building brands, you know, using creativity to solve business problems and really just thinking about that creative aspect of, you know, combining your right and left brains together. And when I was the CEO, really the last decade of my jobs, you know, my career in advertising, I was like the person that the clients would call when they were mad, <laughs> you know, when they were unhappy with something or, you know, dealing with finances or dealing with legal or dealing with HR. And actually, we had a very public Me Too lawsuit at J. Walter Thompson when I was there. And I spent two years um, really on the front lines dealing with that. And I was pretty miserable. And I would come home and 
bitched to my husband every night. And finally, he was like, this is ridiculous. Just leave. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, okay, you're right. Um, so I, I did. I left. Um, I have not looked back at all. I'm so glad I did. I kind of wish I did it sooner, to be honest. But I left. I started a brand consultancy. I met my hair care partner shortly thereafter in 2018. And we decided to launch uh, Masami together. So that's what I've been really focused on the last couple of years. We officially launched in February of 2020, right before everything got shut down. Um, but it's been, it's been amazing, even though it's been completely unpredictable. So yes, that's, that's basically my story. <laughs> well, and you launched the hair care brand and now you do a fair amount with empowering women. Do you do that through the company that you're working with on your hair care brand? Or is this something that you speak about or how does that, how do you get that word out into the community? So when I was at J. Walter Thompson, one of the silver linings of having a very public Me Too lawsuit is that we could lean in really hard on diversity and female leadership. And no one would blink when, you know, when I said, Hey, Hey, we're going to spend, you know, X amount of dollars to do a study with uh, the Gina Davis Institute, you know, which was amazing. Like we actually did a study on advertising with, with them that um, actually analyzed female roles in advertising and just like in movies where women have fewer speaking roles and have shorter words and don't sound as smart and all that stuff, it's, it's, it's even worse than advertising. <laughs> so um, I was able to do things like that because no one was going to question it, you know, when you have that kind of situation. Um, and then I found myself doing things like creating a female leadership program for our creatives. And then I found myself um, mentoring several um, women in the office. And then when I left that, that continued, um, you know, I, I, I continued to do that. And actually I kind of expanded, um, beyond obviously just my own circle. I had a few women reach out to me on LinkedIn and say, Hey, I really could use some advice. I'm starting to launch a business. Would you talk to me? People I didn't know, by the way, these were strangers and I'm always open to that. Um, and so there is one in particular that I talk to every month and she'll kind of say to me like, okay, this is what I did this month. What do you think? Should I try this? Should I try that? And, you know, it's easy for me because at least I feel like I've banked all this wisdom. I might as well put it to use. And, you know, it's great for her because it's, it's, you know, it's an hour. It's not a huge commitment. Um, and I have a bunch of women that I do that with now, um, including a bunch of other female founders, because, you know, it's really, really hard launching a business. And sometimes you just need someone who is in your shoes, who's walked in your, you know, the, in those shoes and somebody who you can vent to, you know, somebody who you can be really honest with about your struggles and they're not going to pass judgment. They're going to help you. So it's really hard to do that with investors or anyone, you know, because you're trying obviously to impress those people. You don't want to, you don't want to open the kimono. So, um, so I find now that I've got a, a handful of women that I talk to regularly. I was just talking to one yesterday, you know, kind of trying to give her some advice because she sort of reached that point in her business where she's saying, do I need to get a full-time job? Is this really working? And, you know, like I said, it's, it's hard. Um, and you have to be willing to make those tough decisions often. And um, it's nice to be able to have peers, you know, mentors, friends, 
to have a circle of of people that you can trust where you can, you know, kind of open up and and share that because what strikes me that happens so frequently is that when women founders open in an audience, for example, of male peers, um, her concerns or her, or even her competence is minimized. And I don't know if they mean to do that or if it's just kind of a competitive atmosphere, but you really run the risk of having your confidence undermined. Oh, absolutely. I mean, when I was in advertising, I never felt like I could show any cracks in the veneer in terms of my own skill set or, you know, I mean, um, I, I don't mean to seem that you have to bluff. I mean, certainly, you know, if there were things I didn't know, I would, you know, ask and find out. But it was a confidence level, I guess I'm getting at, that you never wanted to sort of say, oh, my God, this is really hard or I'm struggling with this um, because it's true. I, there was just the perception that you get eaten alive. And unfortunately, there are a lot of industries like that. You know, the men seem to have a bravado that carries them forward. And what I started to see happening in my situation in my career is that a lot of those men would get promoted before the women which purely based on that, I don't mean to be stereotypical or, you know, general generalized, but I oh, go ahead, go ahead. This is, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I do think women tend to be more inclined to actually master something, not, not pretend they've mastered something where men are fine to like in their head, they've already imagined the success and they see themselves doing it and therefore they're doing it and they have no problem owning it. And women are kind of like, no, I really actually want to do it. And I really want to feel like I know it. And that, that discrepancy that I've seen uh, over the years holds women back because women often don't raise their hands for jobs that they could do because, and then you see a guy get promoted into the job and he's no more capable than the woman, but he asked for it or he, you know, implied that he'd already done some of the things, you know, it's just a, it's just a more, I don't know, I guess it's just a more confident way of positioning yourself um, that women are often uncomfortable doing. So one yeah, of the, yeah, totally agree with that, by the way, totally agree. I see it over and over and over again. And, and it's like, we actually, I think, communicate a message when we do that, that says, I would do this, but I might fail. Right. Whereas a guy says, I'm not sure I know how to do this, but I'll make sure it happens. I think that's right. And, and I, and I think that that putting a little seed of doubt in your manager's brain is sometimes really detrimental to your career. And by the way, I found that it doesn't matter if the boss is a man or a woman. Because, Correct. Because women often have those same <laughs> stereotypical, like they'd hire the man over the woman too. Well, if I were going to be making that decision, I, and I can almost feel it, like just as you're talking about it, I'm having this like body feeling <laughs> yeah. of, of what happens when you have two candidates and one of them is standing before you saying, I'm not really sure I know how to do this and I'm feeling unsure of myself. And the other person is saying, look, I don't have, I don't know. 
how to do this for sure, but I'm going to make sure that it happens. I'm going to get it done for you. And who are you going to go with? You're going to go with the one that says, I'm going to get it done for you. Yeah, right. Absolutely. And, uh, and I think that we unintentionally kind of shoot, shoot ourselves. We shoot, we shoot our foot off one toe at a time. <laughs> yes, that's so true. Well, the other thing I see happen a lot with women, and I was like this, it took me years, years, literally to figure out how to not do this, is that we are the ultimate team players, most of us, not all of us, but most of us. In other words, when I was put in a position in my career, I would get the shittiest job in the agency. Like they would say this, like it was known that the client was abusive and, you know, treated the agency terribly and about to fire the agency. And they would go, Hey Lynn, we have this new opportunity for you. You know, like they try to present it like it was a good thing. And I knew what they were doing. It was like, you're giving me the shit assignment because you don't want to give it to the guy because he won't do it. Um, and I would be a team player and I'd say, fine, yes, I will do it. And then I did it. And then, you know, guess what? The client didn't fire us, you know, and sometimes I'd end up having to stay with that client for a year or two because they, you know, wouldn't want me to move off the business. So that's what happens when you're good at your job, you get penalized because then you're stuck with them. But this idea of like saying yes and taking on these crappy things that other people wouldn't and men wouldn't, I've had to learn kind of the hard way in my career that actually, you know, no saying no can be very, very powerful. And, Mm. you know, that is a tool that men have no problem with. And women don't like to do, Um, don't like to be the one to kind of let somebody down or disappoint, even if it's the decision that you know is right. So that's something that I coach women on a lot now, especially when it comes to priorities in their life, right? Like, cause we're the ones that deal with the childcare, with the, the doctor appointments, with the vet appointments, you know, everything. Right. And, um, I decided when I had kids, like, I'm not the class mom. I don't want to be, I'm not interested in that. I'm not baking cookies. I'm sorry. I'm just not doing any of that. And women don't like to admit that because it's kind of like, oh, what do you mean you're not involved in your kid's school? No, I'm not involved in my kid's school and I don't want to be. I made a decision that like I wasn't going to spend time on that. That's just not fulfilling for me and I wasn't what I wanted to do. And you got to set your boundaries. Now, that may be a very different decision than, you know, my decision versus other women's decision. They may do the opposite and say, you know, I'm going to set the boundaries at work and I'm going to do that stuff because that's what they want to do. But I think you got to set boundaries somewhere is my point, because, you know, you can't continue to try to prioritize everything at the same level. You're just going to go crazy. You're going to burn out, you know? Yeah. This must be boundary setting month. I love what you're saying. I mean, I agree with you 100%. And I, um, uh, the, the conversations that I've been having over the last, you know, couple of weeks um, both here on the show and uh, on social media is around boundary setting. And so, and we're still challenged with this. And I think this is a great place to have the conversation because either we want somebody else to go fight that fight for us. We don't feel like we should be the ones to fight it. Right. Yeah. Like, don't, don't talk to me that way. I'm going to go get HR to tell you to do it differently. Or we kind of capitulate and end up not wanting to, uh, we worry about what people are going to think. 
I think we worry about a little bit too much about what people are going to think of us if we don't do the, you know, three dozen cookies for the kids school or, you know, whatever that boundary might be. And I, I love Brene Brown, Brene Brown in her book, uh, The Power of Vulnerability has a vignette about the school cookies. Are, are you familiar with that? No, <laughs> but I, I know the book, but I have, I know. Tell me about this cookie vignette. It sounds interesting. It's where my mantra comes from. One of my favorite mantras comes from her and it's like, choose discomfort over resentment. Mm. And when we have to say no, it makes us uncomfortable. Right. Yeah. So she's talking about how she had a book launch. She had a book tour coming up. She was flying out of town to do a very important presentation. I'm not sure. I remember the exact details, but, you know, the school mom came up and said, oh, guess what? You know, next week we need three dozen brownies for for this class, you know, for the class party. Uh, How about it? And instead of saying uh, no, She's like, she kind of grits her teeth and says, yes. And she, and, and that was when she was like, you know, what am I going to learn that it, I, I'm baking these brownies like with full of rage and resentment that I didn't stand up for myself. And um, I think that is such a great metaphor for so much of what we do. And I think part of it comes from boundaries practicing, you know, setting boundaries and saying no, like you said, and some of it just comes from we don't really know what we want. Right. I mean, it's so interesting, though. I heard I heard a study um, on NPR the other day um, about women in quarantine um, during COVID. And it said the number one thing women want. I bet you're going to guess it. What do you think it is? The number one thing women want during quarantine? Yeah, like now, like after they've been cooped up and everything, what do you think it oh, is? Probably want to get back to the office. <laughs> well, that, I don't know. That's kind of in line with the answer, which is me time. So the uh-huh, number yeah. one thing women want is to have be alone. <laughs> they, yeah. they, they want to be away from everyone else and they just want time to themselves because, I mean, it's again goes back to like your priorities and being able to set boundaries and saying no, but you know, you're home, you're cooped up with your family, who, of course, you adore, but that often presents an extra level of stress. <laughs> sure, sure it does. Yeah, and so I thought yeah. that was really interesting that women just want to be alone. <laughs> they just want to, you know, have a little me time. And I think I see it with my business because we're, on one hand, on, it's unfortunate we launched right before COVID, or any business to launch right before COVID because it was so unpredictable. But on the other hand, we're a clean premium hair care business. It's about self-care. So, you know, self-care, self-care um, and, and doing something for yourself and indulging in, in products that make you feel good, I think are really important right now, actually. So that is actually a great way to position things. Um, and, and not just speaking it, about it from the advertising angle, but I'll tell you, uh, when my kids were still at home, they were um, in junior high. Uh, we had a family member that came to live with us who had very serious, very serious medical condition. And part of it was dementia. And it wasn't a happy kind of dementia. And, um, 
And here's one of the interesting, I mean, this is a little bit of a tangent, but it comes back to the point. Um, So I'll just tell the story briefly. But one of the things that happens in those kinds of situations, when you have an adult in your household for whom you are caring and you hire a caregiver so that you can have respite time, that individual um, actually works for the person being cared for. And if the person being cared for fires them, they have to leave. Oh, Right. Yeah. And so I ended up trying to get out of the house, trying to have somebody who was covering for me so that I could, you know, even go grocery shopping um, or have a few hours off during the week when I wasn't trying to balance, you know, kids, household, um, pets, you know, family member, et cetera. And and I would come home and find them gone. So there are times, I guess my point for raising that is I don't want people to feel guilty about, you know, not being able to make some boundaries because there are some kinds of circumstances that we get put into. Um, Well, life puts us into, right? Life happens and we end up in a set of circumstances that until we can work out a better alternative, we really are like pressed to the the limits of what anybody can be expected to sustain. So I don't want anybody to feel bad listening to this. However, that being said, I think it's brilliant to have like luxury soap or luxury shampoo, right? Or um, being because you the only me time you might get is in the shower, right? It's so true. And I I just think there's nothing wrong with going out of your way to pamper yourself a little bit these days, whatever that means to you. I'm not trying to sell my shampoo, whatever that means to you. So if that's, you know, bath products or that's, you know, perfume or that's buying yourself a really great cashmere robe, whatever, a silk pillowcase, you know, the things that just make you feel better because I think um, we all need that. And as women, we tend to put ourselves last. It happens all the time. And so, um, yeah. Yeah. I remember, I remember feeling like, uh, like when I would get to the grocery store and I'd literally be walking up and down the aisles of the local grocery store, which was about four miles from my house. And I had, you know, it was just me in the grocery store. I was like, oh my gosh, this is my me time. Like, (laughs) and um, so we have to get it. We can, we have to get it where we can find it. And, and if there's a way, I mean, I guess I would encourage anybody who's in those kinds of circumstances, you know what, this is going to be temporary. This too shall pass, but while it's happening, do what you can to make the most of those moments. Right. right. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. That's such an important, important thing, the whole self-care and and during COVID. Um, So I'd love to kind of pivot a a little bit because you do talk about, you know, confidence, helping women find their voice, um, helping them get paid what they deserve. I'm sure that's one of the things that I talk about is you need to get the compensation you deserve. Can you talk a little bit about what the dynamic looks like to you? Because you, I mean, you went from receptionist to CEO in the advertising business. So I'm sure you've seen a range of things. I would love for you to share your wisdom on that. 
Yeah. So let's, let's start with helping women find their voice first. There's a simple trick that anyone can do. Maybe not so easy to do these days on Zoom calls, but certainly if you're in a meeting and you probably can do it, um, that I started to implement. I, I don't remember where I got the trick from, to be honest. It wasn't my idea. Somebody else had told me it. But um, basically, when you're in a meeting, you'll see a dynamic happen where the men will talk, interrupt, dominate, almost always. Um, yeah, right. of course, there are ex- exceptions, right? But that's almost always the case. And then the women are quieter and, you know, maybe say something here and there, kind of hedge it a little bit. But if you, what we started doing is um, we would literally do two things. One is we'd always make a man be the scribe instead of the woman being the note taker because women are almost always like delegated to like the ones taking the notes. And I hated that in my career because my handwriting sucks. And I always, I never understood why, you know, I'm in a room and I was almost always the only woman. I'm in a, you know, a room of 10 people and I'm the only woman that I have to take the notes. So first of all, we would always make a man do it. And then second of all, when the, you know, people are going around sharing their opinions, you just have to ask the women, what do you think? That's it. Ask for their opinion in every meeting, ask them to speak up because if sometimes you don't actually put, give them the opportunity to take the floor, they won't. And they'll just leave the meeting and it'll be business as usual. But once you start doing that and you ask everyone that who's in that room to speak, and it's usually the women that you have to encourage, then you'll find that that habit starts um, taking on a life of its own and you don't have to ask anymore. So we started doing that actively with some of the, some of the other senior women in my organization, and it worked really well. And it's such a simple thing to do. So that was one thing you can do. On the negotiation side of your salary. So this is what I used to see happen. You know, you start off as a woman and I think my starting salary, it was something embarrassing, like $12,000. It was like really, you know, 1989. But the problem is you get promoted and you're going to make, say, say I went from $12,000 to like $15,000 and the man got $16,000. And then at my next promotion, I get to $20,000, but he's at $22,000. So you're behind already from the very beginning because it just, that's just the way it happened. And so a lot of women make the mistake of basing their new salary off of their old salary. In other words, well, I make $150,000 now, so I can't ask for $200,000. That would be outrageous. It's like, wait a minute, but the guy doing your exact same job makes that. And you know that. So don't just go in and ask for a 10% raise. It's going to take you five years to get to that. Go in and ask for what the job is worth, what your value is, and what you're delivering for the company and base it on that. And by the way, don't make it emotional. I have coached several women on this point because women tend to make it a little bit more about them personally. And it's like, no, it's about the business. It's about your contribution. You know, most of the time women can point to really impressive, stellar business results and say, look, I kept this client, you know, for the agency, you would have lost $5 million if this client left. I did X, I did Y, I did Z, you know, and, um, and don't make it personal and make it about the business. And that I, I, it, you know, personally, I found that that works the best. 
because then it's kind of hard to refute. Um, and then it's also like, you know, the cost of if that person left, that starts to play in like, oh my God, yeah, they did save the business. And if they left, ooh, we would have a, a client who's upset about that. And that might risk that $5 million business. So you know what? We, we'd be better off giving her the $50,000 and keeping her happy. You know what I mean? Oh yeah, totally. I mean, you're, you're talking about making it an economic, and it, it's an economic value proposition. This isn't about, I deserve it, although Correct. you do. Correct. Right? Exactly. <laughs> but exactly. that's, yeah, it, it's, it, it, and you know, there's a, there's a, there's a research study that shows that about 80% of women's performance reviews contains language that is non-actionable, personal, negative value judgments about her you know, about her, that it, there's no way to address those. And, and I think that to some extent, we need to train ourselves and to train the people around us to think about the value that we bring and our, and our performance in very tangible terms, right? Yeah. It's easy, it's easy to say, I did a good job. What did you do? What was the impact? How did that, how much time did that take? Blah, blah, blah. But whatever those metrics are that are very measurable, we have to break the mold of them evaluating us on the basis of whether or not we're nice. Right. Right. <laughs> and whether or not we're a team player. That goes back to my griping about right. that. Or pushy or, yeah. pushy or, or grumpy or, you right. know. <laughs> or too bossy. I had a, I had a review where I was told I was too direct and I'm like, so you'd rather have me beat around the bush. I don't understand. I'm not mean. I'm not aggressive. I'm just direct. And sometimes that's what's required in this business, you know? Um, but it's interesting that women do get branded, um, those types of negative labels where if a man had that review, he would have just been assertive and it would have been a good thing, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, was, it just irks me. It irks me a lot. That's why you're better off going into your own business. <laughs> you can control who you work with, and uh, you don't have to deal with that crap anymore. What What would you say to a young professional who feels like she doesn't have to? She shouldn't have to be assertive in the workplace. She should just be able to be herself. Maybe she considers herself to be more soft spoken and. Um, I've even seen the word fragile get used, but you know, there are some women, young women who are like, I should, after me too, I shouldn't have to say this stuff. I shouldn't have to be assertive. I shouldn't have to stand up for myself. This workplace should accept me just the way I am. And I don't want to do those things. Do you have any advice for her? I agree with that to a point. And, and the reason I'm saying that is because I also learned that I am much better off not emulating some asshole man style because it's not going to get me anywhere because it's not who I am. And I am more of a, of a, let's, I don't know what the word is. I guess I, I exhibit more female leadership traits. Let's say it that way. Listening, empathy, collaboration, things that I think now are really important um, for leaders, but you know, five years ago, 10 years ago, were not so important for leaders. So I think there is nothing wrong with not being assertive and being your own, your own person. And, but the reason I said to a point is because if no one knows what you're thinking, 
then you can't expect them to do things for you or to be taken care of or to get ahead. So even though you may be an introvert, and by the way, I'm an introvert, I'm a learned extrovert, but I am an introvert for sure. You have to still learn how to get your your point across and your opinion out there. And maybe it doesn't have to be interrupting in a meeting. It can mm-hmm. be a thoughtful email. It can be, you know, a one-on-one conversation, but, but, but you're not going to get ahead if nobody knows what's in your brain. So you got to figure out your way to overcome that and still make sure that your opinion and your perspective and your point of view is being heard Um, because that's important and that's how you're going to get ahead. But like I said, there's no reason today that you need to operate in this command and control type of leadership style. I think what we are seeing is there are a lot of different leadership styles and you need to find out what yours is and embrace it and be yourself. Because people respond so much better to authenticity, you know, even if it's not all perfect than a leader who's just bullshitting or trying to be something they're not. Oh, yeah. Oh, for sure. Uh, We've talked about that before on this show of how important it is to show up as yourself and uh, unapologetically stand in your authority of who you really are. Because even if it's, even if it's, um, difficult for some people, they, it, then you are a known quantity. And that is so much better than, you know, dancing around something and being, you know, very situational about your responses to whatever the circumstances might be. I love your response. I think that's so true. Like, be yourself, be yourself. And if it means that you're not, you know, the one who's going to stand up and and take up a lot of presence in the room, then know that and be in it. I'd love to hear what your reaction to this, because my sense of it is right now that most corporations haven't quite evolved to the point where they take every person just as they are and allow them to be that in a, a wonderful rainbow of variety within the company. Um, I always have this, um, you know, this thing that I say about corporate America, and it comes from a exercise that I've done when I have a group of people that I'm doing in a workshop and I have them walk around the room three times and I have them walk around the room once as themselves. And then the second time they walk around the room, I say, whatever that energy was when you walked around the room as yourself, I want you to figure out the opposite of that. Walk around the room as that. And then the third time I have them walk around the room, I say, now you need to walk around the room completely neutral so that you're not projecting anything to somebody else. And then we debrief afterwards and people, the first time we walk around the room, everybody said, well, that was cool. Everybody was themselves. That was great. The second time people say things like, I I took about 50% of my energy figuring out who I was supposed to be. And then the third time they walk around the room, um, they said things like the energy all got sucked out of the room. Everybody looked like a zombie and time slowed down. And that's when I say, well, welcome to corporate America. (laughs) That's so interesting. I love that. That's great. Because that really creates awareness into exactly what we're talking about. But this is my point of view on culture. I think every company has one. So if it's not a culture that is visible and is um, architected, as in what I mean by that is I think 
I think culture should be created, not just let to chance, because companies that lean into their cultures usually have a set of values. They usually hire against those values and they're able to promote those values. Depends what those are, right? It could be sustainability. It could be collaboration. It could be diversity, whatever the values of the company are. But you start to see that play out in the culture. And when companies don't have that clearly identified, that's when you start to see like, it it depends on, you know, what pocket of what group you're in, what pocket you're in, you know. What are those people like? And it can be very different working in one part of the company versus a different part of the company because there's no kind of uniformity, right? And and um, I think you have to really go into a job trying to assess as best you can what those company values are, what they care about, and do they align with your values? Because you don't want to work for a place that's toxic. And I've worked for a few. And it's just really, really emotionally draining because it's not, it's not you, you know, that's the thing that you got to realize if you're working in a culture that, uh, you know, promotes people based on how political they are and how, you know, self-promoting they are or whatever, um, you're just not going to get ahead and you're not going to want to get ahead because you don't want to have to do those things to get ahead. And so I just think, um, it's not that hard these days with like Glassdoor Alpha, sure. you know, um, fishbowl. There's, there's so many places you can go to check out, like, what's it really like working there? You know, if, if I'm an introvert, am I going to get lost? Like, how do they, how do they really handle things like maternity leave, you know, things that Im- impact women? Um, cause that will give you a good sense of, is it a place that aligns with your values or not? And if, if you're getting a lot of signals, a lot of red flags, then listen to your gut. Don't, you know, even if it's like a lot of money or a sexy title, usually the red flags are right, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Learn to trust that intuition. That's the one thing, Yes, you know, people who are sensitive and intuitive have actually really going for them is that your body will tell you, even if you're rational mind is trying to convince you that this paycheck is totally worth it. <laughs> right. your, your body will tell you for sure that something is off and you should listen. Yeah, definitely. A hundred percent. Exactly. And just, just to be, you know, be more aware because then you can make an educated decision. You know, if you say, okay, I'm going to do this for my resume, I'm going to do it for a year. I know it's not ideal, but you can go into it eyes wide open as opposed to getting surprised and disappointed and just feeling shitty about it, you know? Well, having your confidence undermined, yeah. making, doing the, you know, the thing that I see so often is maybe it's me, maybe this is something's wrong with me. It, that just starts this spiral that is, um, that really goes just downhill. It doesn't go uphill from there. So, um, yeah, I, totally agree with that is check it out. And I love, you know, you mentioned this really early on in this episode, but I really love your abundance mindset because it was like, you know what, I can leave here and find another job. I don't, I don't have to stay trapped in something that isn't good for me. I can leave. I think that's important because it's hard for people when they're in a job. I There's a paralysis or maybe it's more like, I don't know if it's paralysis or fear or just comfort. You know what I mean? Like, oh, well, I know this job. I know I, it's the devil I know kind of thing. 
I see so many people stuck in crappy jobs or jobs that are, you know, clearly not good for them. Um, and they just have a hard time leaving. So I think you just have to be honest with yourself and, and trust that there are a lot of, there are a lot of other jobs out there, you know? Right. 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 Even if you, even if it's not obvious to you right now, trust it, there are. There, <laughs> there are. are jobs. Yeah. Yeah. And, and chances are every time I had to make a leap from one place to another, it was always a better leap. It was always a better job. You know, I landed right. well and, it was one exception, one notable exception, which someday I'll tell the story. <laughs> All <laughs> but, right. But, but then I found another job after that that was great, you know. So nothing is nothing is forever, and we don't have to stay stuck in a place that is not good for us. That's the important thing to remember, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. And actually, these days, it's a lot different than, you know, back in the day when I started because people are expected to bounce around a lot more. In fact, right. that, it's not a negative. It's not a it's negative. Not a negative. It, used, it used to be a negative, and now it's actually completely flipped. Where if you're at a company for like more than five years, people think there's something wrong with you. You know. Well, here's the thing: is that you really do own your career. That it used to be that you know, in the '80s, even in the '90s, we were still um, the idea of, of a lifer at a company with a pension, and. Um, the company kind of owned you in a way that they, it was like, they decided where you work. They decided how often you worked or they decided how you got trained. They decided so many things about your life. And we, and we kind of traded that, that was an understood trade. And then when there was like this big, big blow up in the nineties where major corporations were making huge layoffs and we realized for the first time, maybe that this, this is not, you know, we, we don't get to go for the gold watch and that doesn't exist anymore. And we've, but we've, we've hung on to some pieces of that. We've hung on to the idea that the company should train me. We've hung on to the idea that the company is supposed to develop me. We've hung on to those ideas, even though the company is not that kind of a relationship anymore, in my opinion. And so we have a, a a little bit of 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 you know kind of evolving to continue to get to the point that says I, it's almost like I'm an independent contractor. I'm coming to work for you. We have a contract. You're going to pay me. I'm going to work. I'm going to be part of your culture. I'm going to be you know part of your team. Um, and there's there's a certain amount of negotiated agreement involved there where the company gives you a paycheck. But at the end of the day, we're still responsible for ourselves, right? That's right. Absolutely. And I think you're right. It's like that that um, that relationship we have with the company has changed for sure. Very um, much so. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, on one hand, it is sort of like, like I'm not going to get rewarded like my parents did for sticking around. But I think it's a good thing because I think it puts control back in the employee in the employee's yeah. hands, you know what I mean? And so I do think ultimately you can, and that's one of the reasons I started my own business. It's like, I wanted to control my life. I got tired of other people controlling my life or clients or situations or legal or, you know, it's just, it's just exhausting. And I do think there's empowerment and taking control because then, you know what, you live and die by those decisions. And if, if it turns out bad, it doesn't mean that your life is over. 
it just means that you can take that learning and move on to do something else. But exactly. Fail forward. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, look, I think you have to also, when you start a business, you have to be realistic. That's the other thing. Because sometimes people start businesses and they just assume that it's going to be this, you know, incredible success, but it's a lot of hard work. First of all, like a lot, it's 24 seven. And when you look at the numbers of how many businesses actually succeed and how many, I think I saw it was a shocking stat and I'm going to get it wrong. Maybe somebody else will know the correct stat and will correct it in the, in the comments. But I thought it was something like only 3% of startups ever get to see a million dollars of revenue or something like that. It's yeah, it's a tiny number. It's a tiny it's number. Tiny. It, so it might be wrong. It might be more than three, but it was a tiny number. And so like, I think, you know, people have these aspirations and you just have to know that like, it's not a guarantee, but, um, but that's okay. And like I said, you know, you learn from every single situation you're in. And sometimes that is the most valuable thing. And then you can translate that into lots of things. And if you decide, you know what, I want to go back now and take my entrepreneurial learning and go work at this company and help them figure it out. That's cool too. But at least you're deciding. That's the key. Yeah, Yeah, I love that. I love that so much. Well, congratulations on launching your enterprise. Thank uh, you. It's very exciting. Um, I'd love for you to take a minute because somebody might really wonder where they can find your product uh, for some of that self-care we talked about and how can they get a hold of you if they want to, if yeah. they want to connect with you. How, well, how does that happen? I'm easy to find. I'm on LinkedIn. So you can just search Lynn Power and search Masami and you'll, I'll pop up. Um, I'm also very active on social. My handle's Lynn Powered on um, everything. And then for Masami, um, our website is lovemasami.com, L-O-V-E-M-A-S-A-M-I.com. And our social handle is hair across, you know, the whole Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, YouTube, the whole, the whole nine yards. That's exciting. I'm going to go look you up. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so anyway, I'm just so grateful that you were here. Uh, I've enjoyed this conversation tremendously. We could go on and on and on. Um, Probably we'll have to come back and do again and check in and see how we're doing with everything. I want to hear how the company's going and your perspective of uh, founder after what, year three? So year three and and, uh, one year after the pandemic, that would be great. That would be great. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Thanks, Lynn. We'll talk to you soon. Bye. That's it for today's show. Mojo Maker for Women in Tech podcast is part of the ecosystem of knowledge sharing and affordable group coaching to help reverse the trend of women leaving tech and to help diverse women in male-dominated industries get the visibility, opportunities, and compensation they deserve. Be sure to check out our five-day challenge by visiting us online at createyourleadingedge.com. Like what you hear? Subscribe, share, or leave a review wherever you listen to the show. We'll be back again next week. Be well, stay strong, and remember, be an ally. Be an ally.